Hello and welcome to MedTalk's Superbug series. I'm Anthony Frangi. How can we stop the antimicrobial resistance arms race from escalating? On a global level, advice from the World Health Organization recommends that countries prioritize national action plans, put in place stronger regulatory systems and support, invest in ambitious research and development, and urgently phase out the use of critically important antimicrobials as growth promoters in agriculture. Locally, responses to the challenges of antimicrobial resistance need to be nuanced and sophisticated, if only to ensure no communities are left behind. Joining me at the third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum in Brisbane is head of the Primary Care Clinical Unit at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland, Professor Mika Vandriel. Dr. Mark Blaskovich, IMB Fellow at the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Bioscience and Principal Investigator and Program Coordinator for the Community for Open Antimicrobial Drug Discovery. And Dr. Suzanne Parker, National Health and Medical Research Centre Early Career Fellow of the University of Queensland's Centre for Clinical Research. Welcome everyone. If I could start with you, uh, Mika, how are we going in terms of using antibiotics wisely in primary care? Well, we tend to hear a lot about antibiotics in the context of people in hospital and uh, in critical situations. But um, in fact, most of the antibiotics, and it's probably around 80%, are prescribed uh, in the community by general practitioners and nurses and frontline people um, in the community. So um, uh, as prescribers in, in primary care, we have a very important role in um, being the custodians of antibiotics. And um, having said that, I m must also um, admit that we're not doing that great. It uh, depends on who we compare ourselves to. If we compare ourselves to um, countries um, where there is very little regulation on, on um, antibiotic use, then we're probably doing much better. But if we compare ourselves to countries like uh, Scandinavia, um, the Netherlands, um, where I trained uh, in Australia here, we prescribe about twice the amount of antibiotics um, as those countries. And our patients are not necessarily sicker. Um, and they don't necessarily have um, more um, complications related to common infections. Mark, how do you think we're going? Certainly in terms of um, the use of antibiotics, you know, we've constantly been in this arms race against bacteria where we develop a new antibiotic and the bacteria evolve, become resistant. And in the past, we've developed new antibiotics fast enough to, to stay ahead of that resistance. But what's happening now is that companies are no longer developing new antibiotics for a variety of reasons, mainly economic. And so we're losing the development of new antibiotics that are able to treat these highly resistant bacteria that are developing, particularly in countries such as India and China. Mm. Um, and so we need to be preserving the antibiotics we have and making better use of them so we don't develop resistance as quickly anymore. Though long term, what impact is that going to have if we're not developing new antibiotics? So if we don't develop new antibiotics and, and antimicrobial resistance develops to the extent where we can no longer treat infections, we're going to return to the, the pre-antibiotic area before the 1940s where about 40% of people were dying from infections. And so 
cancer therapy will no longer work because the patients become immunocompromised, they get an infection, and the cancer, you know, they'll die from the infection before they can be treated for the cancer. Um, simple surgery will no longer be effective at all because you can't give an antibiotic to prevent an infection from happening. So prosthetic joint replacements, knee replacements, hip replacements, that type of common medical treatment will no longer be possible. You say it's because of economic reasons. It's expensive? So it's, it's very expensive to develop new antibiotics, and the financial reward for a company to get an antibiotic approved now um, doesn't compensate them for all the money they've invested into it. And, and we need to come up with new systems and, and new mechanisms to compensate for the cost of developing a new antibiotic. And so there's a study done recently that reported on uh, the average sales for new antibiotics approved over the last 10 years is about 20 to 30 million dollars per year. This is on a global scale per antibiotic. And the market, the, the post-approval costs, once you have an antibiotic approved, there are a number of additional studies you need to do. Those post-approval costs are about 150 million dollars. So the, the sales of new antibiotics aren't even covering the post-approval costs, let alone all the costs of developing the antibiotic to begin with. Susan, what relevant studies or experiments have you been involved in so far? So my research is focused on optimising the use of our currently available antibiotics. And so this is for patients who really need the antibiotic and then making sure that we're giving it to them the right dose, the right length of course of our doses so that our treatment is optimised and they've got the best opportunity for uh, Outcome, a good outcome from an infection, but also to minimise the impact of resistance. And from your research, what challenges do clinicians face when prescribing antibiotics for neonatal and paediatric patients? Yep. So there's very few studies have been done on paediatric patients and neonates. Uh, so we really don't have a lot of information on how to optimally dose them. In uh, A lot of the dosing is based on studies that have been performed in adults or healthy patients. And then it's uh, they calculate it based on weight and then this is how they provide the dosing to the children. And this is probably, it, it's highly likely that this is going to lead to subtherapeutic concentrations of an antibiotic so you'll get poor treatment outcomes and this is the area of my research where we're able to start to perform these studies in children. And Mika what about prescribing antibiotics in clinics and even in homes by out of out of hours doctors? Yes, that's one thing that we are starting to look in more closely because uh, all GPs will have experience that they've seen the, uh, a patient uh, and uh, with an infection, given them some instructions to um, look after that at home without an antibiotic. And then after hours, the patient feels a bit sicker and um, calls an after hours doctor. And the next morning, you come to clinic and you see that they've been prescribed an antibiotic, which you had been trying to avoid. So um, I think there's still a lot of work to do uh, to, to try to um, get a better um, uh, approach to using antibiotics and to communicating with patients and taking your patients on board that the reason you're not prescribing is not because you're not taking them serious, seriously, mm. but actually um, to, um, to give them a better outcome uh, in the long run. So what would be some of the limits, though, uh, that clinicians should impose on their own practice that would help reduce antimicrobial resistance? 
Well, we would hope that um, one day it would be part of your practice accreditation that, um, that uh, you have an antimicrobial stewardship policy, for instance, and that that policy is agreed upon by everyone, not only the prescribers, but also the nurses and um, the receptionists, everyone in the practice, and ideally also in collaboration with your uh, patients, because we all have a role to play. Sometimes doctors say that they feel pressured by patients to prescribe um, because they want a quick fix. But in my experience, if you explain to patients that, you know, that is um, what the normal course of, of events is in the infection and what you can do and what you need to look out for um, if things get uh, worse, then they're very happy to accept um, just you know, waiting and seeing. Are there any additional health implications for at-risk communities, for instance in, in regional and remote locations or in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? Absolutely. Um, if you go to remote communities, uh, what we know is that the burden of infections in those communities is much higher. It is linked to often the environment that's much more harsh, um, so the climate, but very much also the social determinants of health, um, poverty, poor sanitation, um, um, poor nutrition. So there's uh, a huge burden of infections that we don't see as much here in uh, in the cities. Plus, there is uh, an access problem. So if someone gets sick, um, that um, and they deteriorate, it is much more difficult to get to uh, the, the the right health services. So in remote areas. Um, Clinicians are much more generous in prescribing antibiotics, and probably rightfully so. There is a, a different approach needed in an urban setting where we have access to uh, diagnostics and we, we use um, the, uh, the, the techniques that Susie's developing to, um, to better target and, and uh, treat patients. But um, in a remote communities we don't have that and we um, you know, operate in a different environment. Suzanne do you want to talk about those te techniques that you're working on? Yes certainly so uh, when, uh, what I'm looking at in my research is to perform our studies you often need to take multiple blood samples from a patient and this is has traditionally been done in an adult patient and they're usually comfortable with the amount of blood we take. Sometimes it was as much as say 50 to 80 mils. But what we're looking at doing now is reducing that down to less than a drop of blood, which means that we're now able to perform these studies in neonates and children. And I think Mika would be very interested to hear that we're also taking this, uh, we've got a study occurring in Vietnam, and this is in remote communities. And what we're able to do is take a drop of blood and then dry the sample, and the sample's then transported into Brisbane where we can then perform the drug analysis and do the mathematical modelling, which is then able to give us dosing recommendations for patients who are quite remote from the cities. Mm. Yep. Mika, I see you nodding there. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be fabulous for uh, remote communities. I do some work in, in very remote communities every now and then. And, um, and, and you know, having that uh, type of support is just really helpful, yeah. Mark, uh, I mentioned at the start that you're the principal investigator and program coordinator for the Community for Open Antimicrobial 
drug discovery. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we're taking a number of different approaches trying to discover and develop new antibiotics. And so there, there are a variety of ways that have been used over the years to to find antibiotics and to develop them. So probably over the last few decades, the, the most common approach has been to take an existing antibiotic and to modify it to make it better, improve, try to overcome resistance. And, and we've got one program working on that where we've taken vancomycin, which is a, a, uh, bec- a antibiotic that targets bacteria such as methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and made a, a supercharged vancomycin, which is more potent, lasts longer, and, and more effective. Um, another approach is to go back into the, the golden age of antibiotic discovery in the 50s and 60s, where a lot of new antibiotics were being discovered, but not many of them were being developed because there were so many other options at the time. And you can go back in the literature and try seeing if there are any hidden golden gems within those, those antibiotics that were discovered but never developed. And so we do have a very promising um, program for uh, treating uh, the very highly resistant gram-negative bacteria with a new class of what are called lipopeptide antibiotics, similar to polymyxin and colistin, but able to overcome the resistance that's been developed against those bacteria. The other approach is to go back to how antibiotics were first discovered and go back to natural product discovery. So most antibiotics were originally discovered coming from bacteria and fungi. Um, They're used as a chemical warfare between these microorganisms, and we've co-opted those those compounds to develop our antibiotics. And so there's a lot of effort um, around the world now to reinvent natural products discovery to make it more productive because there there are new techniques using whole genome sinique, whole genome whole genome sequencing um, so you can try to identify pathways where microorganisms are making different antibiotics we haven't yet discovered. So we've decided to take a different approach and so we're trying to find synthetic chemical diversity. So chemists around the world have made millions of chemical compounds over the last hundred years and the majority of those have never been tested for antimicrobial activity. The big pharma companies have screened all their large compound collections and particularly in the last couple decades have not been very successful at finding new antibiotics. And part of the reason for that is that they are now curating their libraries for drug-like properties. So there, there are certain characteristics of compounds which make them better to be taken as a pill, for example. And if you look at the structures of antibiotics, most approved antibiotics don't follow those rules. So if you're tr- now curating all the collections of compounds that you're accumulating for these properties, you're excluding a lot of the compounds that potentially could be antibiotics. And so COAD, our, our community for open antimicrobial drug discovery, uh, is an initiative largely funded by the Wellcome Trust and supported by the University of Queensland to offer free screening to academic chemists around the world to test their compounds for antimicrobial activity. And it's, it's free for them to send in compounds. They retain all the rights to their compounds. So it's a, the largest open access initiative to try to discover chemical diversity. And it's been, been very successful. Mm. So over the last four years, um, we've received over 300,000 compounds from 300 different academic groups in 45 countries around the world. And we've identified you know, thousands of, of potentially promising hit compounds within the compounds that they've sent us to test. And uh, Mark, if what you were saying earlier continues, which is the lack of new 
research and uh, new treatment, then what you're doing is probably paramount more than ever. One of the things we think is most powerful is that we're encouraging other research groups to become interested in discovering new antibiotics. And, you know, it makes it very easy for a graduate student who's making compounds potentially for some other um, biological activity to also see if it has antimicrobial activity. And during the course of their PhD, they can get results back. And if it does sh show some promise, they, you know, A, can get another publication out of it, but B, potentially can become interested in, you know, channeling their research into trying to discover new antibiotics. Suzanne, what promising signs are you seeing when it comes to responding to antimicrobial resistance in young children? I think what we're seeing is a, is a lot of interest from clinicians in seeing research happen and I think that's so important to ensure and to, to safeguard our current antibiotics to protect the new antibiotics like Mark's developing so that uh, they're going to be used the most effectively that they possibly can. Mm. And Mika, what will the future be like for the next generation of children if antimicrobial resistance continues to worsen and we don't start seeing some very positive results? Yes, um, I don't like to think about that mm. because um, the future for our children's children will not look very, very bright. And um, as Mark has already said, you know, we might face a situation where we um, cannot treat life-threatening infections. Um, so we don't want to go there. And, um, and the work that is being done on uh, discovery of, of new antibiotics is fantastic, but we can't rely on that. We have to act um, on all fronts. And that also means try to reduce as much as we can uh, the, um, the resistance that is being developed by overuse of antibiotics. So if we can just reduce the, 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 um, you know, the number of antibiotics that are prescribed and we can target them uh, much better, um, we might be able to preserve them a bit longer. And, and, and just on that, if we have to reduce the, the prescribed use, mm. is, is that a message for doctors or is that a message for patients who often go in and say, give me something I want to feel better by tomorrow or the All next day. All of the above. All of the above. And um, as a clinician, I um, uh, try to teach my patients to have confidence in their own immune system. Before we had antibiotics, people didn't always die from an infection. That was a normal part of, of life, of the environment we live in. And our immune systems are usually quite capable of dealing with it. And so now that we have antibiotics, have our immune systems haven't just stopped being capable and um, being more confident in, in that um, also empowers people and, and, and some of them really like that. Um, so I think there are lots of things that we um, need to um, educate people on and that includes doctors as well. How do we empower doctors? How do we change the way that they perhaps are practicing at the moment? Or is that too big a question? That's a, that's a $10 million <laughs> question. And that's, um, you know, the work that we have been, been doing um, for um, many, many years. Uh, we know that a lot of interventions help. Um, for instance, um, having some rapid tests at the point of care where you can show patients, well, your infection is not a bacteria, it's, it, but it's a virus and antibiotics don't work. Um, giving patients information, um, 
many of these and, and, and also talk, uh, teaching doctors how to communicate to patients better in, in ways of um, trying to find out what is the main concern of the patient and that that concern is uh, not necessarily um, uh, addressed by taking antibiotics. There's all of these interventions and I think we need to do all and we need to um, educate uh, doctors and reward doctors for doing the right thing and uh, educate patients and reward patients mm -hmm. for doing the right thing. The, the one thing that would have the biggest change in reducing antibiotic usage would be the development of a rapid diagnostic. So, you know, point of care at a doctor's office can tell the doctor, yes or no, this patient has an infection. And that gets rid of that whole pressure for doctors to prescribe just in case and for patients demanding antibiotic usage. Um, and, and going further, you know, if not only you can tell if you have an infection, what type of bacteria and what type of resistance genes, then you can prescribe the appropriate antibiotic the first time and not have to, you know, prescribe something that's very powerful if only it, it's susceptible to a older antibiotic that still works effectively. Mm. Mm. I think the other, other issue is that we um, are trying to dichotomize, you know, if it's a virus, we don't need an antibiotic. If it's a bacteria, then we need an antibiotic. But most bacterial infections in primary care are self-limiting. So that dichotomy is, in fact, a false one. And we um, uh, need to be aware that we um, don't teach people that, oh, if it's a bacteria, then we need an antibiotic, because that will not take us where we want to get. Why are antimicrobial uh, stewardship programs so important? They're extremely important because they raise awareness of the issue and they help us um, improve the care that we give to, uh, to, to the patients and, and improve outcomes, not only for patients but for the community as a whole. And antimicrobial stewardship as a whole, as a, a, a set of interventions, a set of, of tools that we use to prescribe antibiotics wisely is, um, is the only way forward. We can't just focus on one thing. We need to look at the whole picture and, and approach this from uh, different angles. Within your uh, own line of work, what kind of conversation are we likely to have in five years' time? Can I put that question to you, Suzanne? What sort of the questions or the, the conversations that you would like to see in five years? Um, I think I'd certainly like to see more confidence from clinicians that they are uh, providing their patient with the right antibiotic at the right dose and that they know and they, they have the confidence that their treatment is going to be effective. Mm -hmm. Mika? I would hope that in five years time we look back and say well we have done an amazing job um, but let's make sure that we maintain um, how, we're, how we're going. Mark? Yeah from an antibiotic development perspective having uh, financial incentives in place that make it commercially viable to develop antibiotics again. Mika, Mark and Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us here at the third National Antimicrobial Resistance Forum in Brisbane.